0: The National Institute of Standards and Technology just released Revision 1 of its Guide for Applying the Risk Management Framework to Federal Information Systems, a Security Lifecycle Approach. Hello, I'm Eric Chabro of GovInfoSecurity.com and the Information Security Media Group, and I'm talking with Ron Ross. He's the NIST Senior Computer Scientist and Leader of the Joint Task Force Transformation Initiative Interagency Working Group that helped shape this guide. Also known as NIST Special Publication 837. That's 80037.
1: Welcome back, Ron. Thanks very much, Eric. It's good to be with you today.
0: Before we get into the specifics about uh, SP-837, I'd like to get your characterization of the current state of cybersecurity in America. At a hearing this week, former National Intelligence Director Mike McConnell said, if we were in a cyber war today, the United States would lose. Is the state of cybersecurity in the United States and the federal government that bad?
1: I think we're evolving. Uh, The the data security, uh, we've made enormous progress in the last decade. We've had so many different areas that we're trying to attend to at one time. There's been a tremendous amount of progress, but there's still a lot of work to be done. His characterization represents uh, the situation that we continue to see, fairly devastating set of cyber attacks that are being launched from adversaries around the globe. And this is something that that are still impacting our systems within the federal government and also within the private sector. I think this is going to be an ongoing thing. I don't think there's ever going to be a point where we're actually done and we can say everything is buttoned down and we're totally secure. Technologies are evolving. We're going to cloud computing. We're, We're moving into new technology areas. We're increasing our network connectivity all the time. We're using technology aggressively. And our job as security professionals is always going to be trying to find ways where we can characterize the risk in an appropriate way And I'm talking about risk to our operations, assets, individuals, our missions. How do we characterize that risk and make sure that we're applying all of the security controls that we need to have to protect these missions and operations to the best of our ability? I do agree that there is still much work to be done, but I also agree that we've made an awful lot of progress as well.
0: In our previous chats, you have maintained that if federal agencies, as well as other organizations, rigorously follow NIST cybersecurity guidance – Many of the problems they face in securing their digital assets would be achieved. Representative David Wu, who chairs the House subcommittee that has NIST oversight, says NIST has created some great guidance, but is not necessarily in a language that everybody understands. Aren't the standards too complicated to follow? If that's not the case, why do you think it's hard for some agencies to follow the guidance to secure IT that NIST provides?
1: It was Albert Einstein that said things need to be as simple as they need to be and no simpler. And we try to, in all of our standards and guidelines, provide guidance that is both technically correct and also implementable. To reach that bar, it has to be understandable to our constituents. Now, some of the issues that we deal with are by nature complicated. But I believe our guidance, the way it's written, and I can, you can go down every one of our publications, from Dash 53 where we have our management, operational, technical controls, all the way to the new risk management framework, which characterizes a new, CNA process, certification and accreditation. I believe the way those guidelines are written are, are very understandable by our constituents, and I believe they are able and are implementing those guidelines uh, very effectively today.
0: Okay, let's talk about the guide for applying risk management framework to federal information systems. I'll briefly explain the main points presented in this publication and why they're so important
1: in our redesign of the certification and accreditation process, there were certain very large issues that we wanted to make sure we achieved in the new 837. And I think that the one that comes to the top of the stack for me, the most important one, is, is achieving what I call better front-end security. And I use the term front-end to characterize building better products, building better systems ends up with better security at the end of the day. And so we talk about building security in to these systems early in the life cycle. And by using the the risk management framework, which has our six-step process that characterizes a good security program, we are able to spend as much time up front defining good sets of requirements, good sets of security controls, implementing those controls in the most effective manner we can. And then once we get those steps accomplished, then we can go on to the traditional ways that we talk about with certification and accreditation, where we assess the controls to see how effective they are, and then we end up with whatever deficiencies and, and, and weaknesses remain, uh, vulnerabilities that remain not covered residual vulnerabilities that then can go into some kind of a risk determination and risk acceptance process. The ability for us to focus on the front end is greatly increased by using the risk management framework because each of those steps is equally important. And we don't end up focusing all of our attention on just the certification and accreditation part of the process, which has always been important, but no more important than getting things done up front in the right way. By that same token, it also allows us to focus on continuous monitoring after we've made the initial authorization or risk acceptance decision. And that is really where the action is today. Continuous monitoring is critical, making sure we understand on an ongoing basis the security state of our systems, not just every three years or every six months, but on a day-by-day, hour-by-hour basis. That's the op-tempo that our adversaries are working in today as they launch these very sophisticated cyber attacks against our critical systems.
0: What happens next in getting agencies to uh, follow this guidance?
1: Well, as so with all of our publications, as they're updated, um, agencies have um, one year for their legacy systems to actually implement the new guidance. For any systems that are brand new, they're currently going through the life cycle development, they will be expected to comply with the new guidance as that system gets fielded. That policy has already been established by OMB and continues to be carried out through our guidance. So there will be a transition period with all of these new publications as agencies start to adopt the new guidance.
0: You issued a draft of this revision last fall. Is there anything new in this final revision that was implemented since the draft was issued?
1: Yes, there's a couple of new things in here I think that our customers are going to be very excited to see. We start to address something that has been going on for a long time. Service-oriented architectures and cloud computing are examples of what we characterize as dynamic subsystems within the new 837. This is kind of an acknowledgement that our classic information system boundary, which for years and years we viewed as being kind of a static boundary, that boundary now becomes more porous as we start to use external services and we start to go to service-oriented architectures, sometimes the, the components of your system are not there all the time. They get brought in on an on-demand basis. And we start to address dynamic subsystems in the new 837 by talking about how do we make sure that those services that are being provided, wherever they may emanate from, have some standard of security due diligence applied to them too. So you can make certain assumptions and you can establish certain constraints on how those services are used and how they impact other operating parts of your system. That you're using to carry out your core missions. The other very important thing we've added to Appendix F is we've extended the types of authorization approaches that an organization can use. The traditional approach has a single authorizing official, or if you're in the the DoD, they call them designated approving authorities. The traditional approach has a single authorizing official making a single authorization decision for each of the systems. We've added two new approaches. One is called a joint authorization, where you can have multiple authorizing officials working together going through all the steps in the risk management framework to include defining requirements all the way through implementation and then together making a collective, a joint authorization decision. This would be a situation where, for example, you might have several federal agencies that are considering using an external service or an external service provider, and they want to be involved all the way through the process to make sure everything that's important to them as an organization to support their missions are reflected in that authorization process as they apply the risk management framework. The second new type that's now the third type of authorization, is called a leveraged authorization. And this, again, is going to apply probably in a pretty big way with some of the new paradigms out there like cloud computing. So a leveraged authorization uh, would be something along the lines that a federal agency, for example, the GSA, may go out and accredit or authorize cloud providers' information system. And then after they've gone through that authorization process, there may be a string of other federal agencies that decide somewhere down the line after that authorization is completed that they also want to use that cloud provider services. But instead of having to go back and having each of those agencies do a complete reauthorization for their own purposes, they can now use the documentation and evidence produced as part of that first agency's authorization, and they can use that as the basis of their risk decision. Sometimes that's all they need to have to go forward and make their own authorization decision, their own risk determination and acceptance. This has the potential to save the federal government literally millions of dollars so every agency doesn't have to go forward and do the same process over and over and over again.
0: Is it a change of culture among IT and IT security professionals in government? Or the technology itself, or both, that has prompted these kinds of changes, or these new kinds of authorizations.
1: Well, there's clearly a change in culture because I don't think three decades ago, or even two decades, or even a decade ago, if you would have uh, come to us and said, uh, "Let's try to bring all these three communities together with the DoD, the ICM, the non-national security community," I think it would have been next to impossible. I think what's brought us together is all of us. Each of the three communities are looking at the types of attacks and threats that we are up against today, and we We're all agreeing that in order to be successful and defend ourselves to the best of our ability, we need to cooperate and we need to bring together all of the expertise that we have across the entire federal government and the private sector where they choose to adopt our standards and guidelines, bring everyone together to try to to unify our forces and to develop the most effective solutions that we possibly can. So, yes, there's been a change in culture. There's also been evolving technology, which always happens. We're going into cloud computing now. That's a new computing paradigm, new technology area that we're going to be facing head-on with some of our current standards and guidelines and best practices. It's all about being able to adapt to the new technologies, assessing sensing risk to the greatest degree possible, and making sure that you go into your mission operations with your eyes wide open, knowing everything you can possibly know about where you stand with regard to security.
0: So what's next for you?
1: Well, this is our second publication in the series of five that the DOD and the intelligence community have agreed to work with NIST on. 853 is done. 37 is done. Now we're moving on to 800-53 alpha, which is the um, document that defines all of the assessment procedures so agencies can figure out if their controls are actually working effectively. Uh, from there, we're going to move out and finish our enterprise-wide risk management guideline that goes under the number 800-39. Uh, that document will be out uh, sometime in the Early summer, and then of course, we're going to finish the series of five with the, the new 800 30, which is the risk assessment guideline. While all that's going on, there's two new publications I wanted to mention to, uh, to you and, and your listeners that are not part of the five in the Joint Task Force, but they're very important. One is a Systems and Security Engineering Guideline. This gets back to the basic theme that we're trying to emphasize this year, getting back to the fundamentals, better products, better systems, better security. This guideline will talk about practices for building uh, commercial products into an integrated information system and using our best practices to do that integration effectively and as securely as we possibly can. We're also going to be publishing later this year a guideline on application-level security. This will include things like web applications and any type of an application where we can build in some of the security controls and best practices into those applications, which are a very critical part of the information technology stack as you go from applications to middleware to operating systems down to hardware. We have to worry about all of these things in a defense-in-depth type of a solution.
0: Well, you've been listening to Ron Ross, Senior Computer Scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks, Ron, for talking with us again. Thanks very much, Eric. For the Information Security Media Group and GovInfoSecurity.com, I'm Eric Chabro. Thanks for listening.